Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Turn with me in your Bibles before you're seated to the second epistle of Timothy, and we'll read from chapter 3. And starting in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God, And the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The second epistle or second letter to Timothy from Paul was written by Paul the Apostle, and it was one of the last things that Paul wrote that we have on record before he was martyred. He tells Timothy, the time of my departure is at hand. And he asks Timothy to come see him at Rome before he goes, before he is martyred. Paul knows that he is going to be martyred, and he is writing to Timothy. Where is Timothy? Timothy is at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, where the epistle of Ephesians was written to, was put under the authority of Timotheus, who we call Timothy, uh, by the Apostle Paul. And so just like he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote a letter to Timothy, instructing him how to lead effectively in that church that Paul put him over, that Paul made him a minister over. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, you may be seated. We have for the last several weeks, well, I mean, not for the last several weeks, for practically the last 2,000 years, but especially the last seven weeks, we have, we have uh, been speaking about the first hundred years of the church. We have spoken about the authority that the apostles walked in and the authority that the early church walked in. How the uh, 
apostolic and early church fathers wrote how they acted, how they dealt with sickness, how they dealt with demons, how they dealt with pagans. You know, we read about uh, um, Irenaeus saying, okay, if you don't believe in the gospel, bring a demon-possessed person. Bring a person who claims to be possessed by a pagan god and have them face up against any Christian and watch what happens when that Christian casts the devil out of them. You have a church that is walking in a time where they're facing the greatest persecution that the church ever faced, but they're walking in a boldness because they know that the word that they have received is backed up by the power of God. And that's the early church. But there's something that we have to understand, and that is the early church is not some abstract concept. It is not an analogy that we are trying to attain to. It is a real church that existed in the first few centuries and was founded by the apostles. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is important because it's very easy to look at the, that, at the New Testament as almost a fable. People look at the things that happened in the New Testament and it's like they took place in a different world. That's the reason why people don't believe they can walk in the same kinds of miracles the apostles walked in. That's the reason why they think that the Christianity of that time had power and the Christianity of this time does not. Because in their mind, they divorce that time period from this time period that we live in now. In fact, in their mind, they divorce the apostles from the church. Because they say, oh, that was the apostles. That was the apostles. You know, those miracles ended when the apostles died. The apostles are these mythological heroes to them who were different from and separate from the church. But the Bible tells us the exact opposite. When you read through the New Testament, you see the church in operation. You see Paul addressing people who we have no information about beyond the fact that Paul addressed them because we don't have books written about them. But they lived alongside Paul. They worked alongside Paul. They operated in miracles and teaching alongside Paul. We're talking about people that were placed in authority over churches by the apostles and were instructed to pass down the teaching. And so we've talked about, we've, we've quoted secular historians in the first hundred years of the church, how they talked about the church, the pagans, how they talked about the church, all of the, the irrefutable proofs of the historical church of Christ. And we've talked about what it is that the people that lived after the apostles believed that they received from the apostles. And there is no indication that they believe that the church is on a different level from the apostles. In fact, the word that they teach is that what they received is exactly what the apostles walked in. That what they received is the apostles' doctrine. And it's not doctrine only in teaching. That word means teaching. 
It's doctrine in action. Because that is how we see doctrine defined in the New Testament. It is not only the way that someone speaks, it is their behavior. It is not only the things that someone says, it's the authority behind it. When Jesus cast out devils and healed the sick, the word of God says they were astonished at his doctrine because that action was a part of the teaching. That action was inherent in the teaching. And so all of us are very familiar with Paul, but there's a lot less talk about Timothy. There's a lot less talk about Titus. There's a lot less talk about Priscilla and Aquila. There's a lot less talk about Phoebe and Junia. There are heroes of the faith in the New Testament These are people that are in the Bible as heroes of the faith, being exhorted and taught by the apostles. But the reason I say this is because it is important that you understand that the book of Acts and the New Testament books, the epistles to the churches, are not this one thing over here, and then the church comes after that. There is not a hard stop on the preaching of the gospel and then the church comes after that. The church continued unbroken. The people living at that time saw no distinction between themselves and the people that came before them. They were the inheritors and you are also the inheritors. And so you have to be even more mindful of that. This isn't a hard stop. It's not even a gradient, like a, like a slow change. It is a continual passing down of the word of God, unbroken, unweakened, undiluted. Because when you receive the Holy Ghost, you do not receive a lesser Holy Ghost than the apostles received, than the five, than the 120 received, than the 500 received, than the 3,000 received, than the multiplicities of the church multiplied in the book of Acts and in all the epistles and in all the churches received. It's that same Holy Ghost. So we're reading in a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Who is Timothy? Timothy is listed as a co-writer in six of Paul's epistles. And so it says, Paul and Timotheus write unto you. Do you think Timothy knew the word? Do you think Timothy was operating in the things that Paul was operating in? And Timothy's not the only one. There are many great men of faith that were raised up by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle John, by all the apostles, right? But in this this verse, he's talking about his imminent martyrdom. And he is instructing Timothy on how to act, on how to be, on how to continue carrying out what he has been called to. And he says, do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. This is a personal letter to a personal disciple. 
We now have it bound in a book that we carry around and we take what's from it. And many of these letters, well, we know that pretty much all of these letters were read publicly in the church as well because these are people that were the disciples of Paul. These are people that were in churches planted by Paul. And so every word, everything that they could get, they were ready uh, to read from. And so it's a personal letter, but it's an instructional letter. It's a pastoral letter. It's uh, beneficial to us, right? But he says to Timothy, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed into Thessalonica. Then he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me in the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus when thou comest, bring with thee, and the books, but especially the parchments. What is this? This is Paul the Apostle updating Timothy on a bunch of other ministers. One of them forsook the faith because he hath loved this present world. Titus went to Dalmatia. He, he's talking about grab my cloak and my books and bring them to me. This is a personal letter. This is someone with a personal relationship with Paul the Apostle. This is a person who was the overseer that word episcopo, where we get the word bishop, is the word overseer. This is the overseer that was appointed by Paul over the church of Ephesus. And he goes on to say uh, about people that have stood against him. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of him be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. And my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he says, salute Prissa and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. He's listing people that are with him then at the church in Rome. Linus was appointed as, Linus, who he mentions in this scripture, was appointed as the overseer of the church of Rome after Peter. And so Linus was appointed the overseer of the church of Rome by Peter. He was the one that was succeeded by Clement, who wrote the first epistle of Clement, which I believe we quoted something from a few weeks ago. But this is, these are people in a church. This is an actual church. There is actual places where people are actually meeting, right? And here is, you, you know, Euodius and Linus and, and Clement, and they're all sitting in the front row. 
These are members of the church. And this is a church that is not one building in one city. It is a church that is all over the world. It is a church where many individual churches have been planted, but all of them recognize that they are one body. This is a pre-denominational church. There was just the one church. There was just the one body of Christ. And there still is just the one church. And still is just the one body of Christ. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. And it says here, the, the second epistle unto Timotheus ordained the first bishop of the church of the Ephesians was written from Rome when Paul was brought before Nero the second time. Nero is not a guy you want to be brought in front of. We, we, we spoke about that a little bit before we read some of the histories about what Nero did wasn't super pleasant. But uh, the good news, we're going to talk about martyrdom some more today. So, (laughs) Now, why is this important? This is important because you have to understand, like Dr. Harfouche says when he talks about the early church, and he says, we did this, and we did this, and we did this. You have to understand that there is no separation between the apostles. There is no separation between the New Testament and today. You are living in the New Testament. The New Testament is not a thing that ended. And you are living epistles of that New Testament, of that new law, of that new birth. Right? But let's talk a little bit about the world at this time that Paul is writing. The church of Ephesus is about 650, 700 miles away from the church of Antioch. It's a long trip on on a donkey or a horse. It's it's a long trip by car, actually. But it's a, a much, 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 much longer trip by donkey or by horse. It's on the western coast of what's today Turkey, but was then referred to as Asia. And it's beautiful, by the way, gorgeous on the Mediterranean. It's very nice. Um, uh, But that's where Ephesus is. And then at Antioch, there was the church where the Christians were first called Christians, where believers were first called Christians. And that is quite a bit north of Jerusalem where was the church that was headed up by James, the brother of Jesus. And then you have Alexandria, which is in Egypt, across the Mediterranean from Ephesus, that was also in existence at that time and was founded by Mark. And then you have Rome, that's all the way over there in Italy, if you didn't know that, (laughs) where Paul is writing from at that time. And you have a great many other churches all over in different parts of the world. We have Paul's epistles, you know, the Philippians, the Corinthians. These are places, places all over the pagan world where the church has been founded and has grown and has become strong in the word. This is the world that was in place 
at the time before Paul and Peter even were martyred. But then John, as we talked about, lived for a great many years after Paul and Peter were martyred. John lived almost as long as Timothy did. And so you have, I'm, you know, why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this for a very specific reason. It's because we have not only their writings, their letters, but we have writings from the people that came immediately after them. Uh, I, we've been speaking specifically about a kind of group of people that were sort of pen pals of the early church that we have a lot of writings from back and forth. We've been talking about Irenaeus, who was a very early witness to the apostolic generation in the natural, what we call the apostolic church fathers because they were the direct disciples of the apostles, right? And we've, been talk we've talked about Polycarp, who was martyred, who was a disciple of John. We've talked about Ignatius, who was martyred, who was a disciple of John. And we've talked about Clement, who succeeded Linus, who we just mentioned in Scripture, right? Who was uh, a bishop in Rome, right? And this is just a, a quick timeline here for you. So you have Ignatius and Polycarp. Ignatius is old enough where he was already in his 30s when Paul and Peter were martyred. Polycarp was born around the time that Paul and Peter were martyred, maybe a little bit after. And so he was alive, living in Ephesus. We're talking about Ephesus. Timothy is the overseer. John, the apostle, is living at Ephesus, is writing from Ephesus, is teaching at Ephesus. And it's there that Polycarp and Ignatius both sit under the ministry of John. Ignatius goes on to become the bishop in Antioch. And Polycarp goes north of Ephesus to a city called Smyrna and becomes the bishop there. And we have a direct connection between these people and the apostles. We have a direct during the lifetime of, there is an overlap between all of these individuals. These people were trained up by the apostles. And they trained up those that came after them. And so you have Irenaeus, who says that he could recall to you all of the way that Polycarp lived. The way that he spoke the way that he dressed, the manner of his life. Because Irenaeus grew up under the teaching of Polycarp. But Polycarp grew up under the teaching of John, the apostle. And so there's a direct connection from person to person to person being passed down. There's a direct generation of the gospel the good news being handed from generation to generation to generation through all of these people. They, they knew each other. They lived among each other. They wrote about all of those that had seen Jesus with their own eyes, 
who had touched his body after his resurrection, who still lived and were walking around and talking about it. Not just John, but a great many people. Timothy passed before John did. Timothy passed before John did, and Ignatius passed just a few years after John did. About eight years after John passed, Ignatius passed. He wrote to Polycarp an epistle, which we have a copy of, the letter that he wrote to Polycarp. He wrote a separate letter to Smyrna, where Polycarp was the bishop, to the people. Both of them were meant to be read to the people. But this is someone who almost his entire life overlapped with the Apostle John, who he was raised up by before he was martyred, who was writing to churches, and we have all of these writings. And so we have the evidence of the passing down of the doctrine of the apostles from person to person, from generation to generation. I know that this is very, I'm giving you a lot of information right now. But the truth is, it's very important for you to understand the undeniableness of the proofs that we have of the beginnings of the church. It's not up for debate what is historical and what is not historical. And for a great many centuries, there have been people who have tried to rewrite history, who have tried to say, no, all of these things can't be trusted for this reason, and therefore, none of it's reliable. And they have convinced a great many uneducated people. And so you'll hear people talk about things that are essentially myths, urban legends, and they'll say, oh, well, we don't know when the Bible was written. The Bible was written hundreds of years after the apostles lived. Right? The Bible was tampered with after the apostles lived. We don't have information about that time period. But that's, that's fabricated. That is, a, that is literally a lie. And though those arguments were made a couple hundred years ago, no historian worth his salt still agrees with any of those arguments. Every single one of those arguments has been shot down and has been defeated by new discoveries that have proven that what the church was handed was handed down unbroken. That the New Testament that we have is the authentic works of the eyewitnesses that lived at the time of Christ. And the greatest witness of that is the people who they raised up. The people who were writing that also lived at the time of the apostles. People that were one of the 70 apostles or one of the 500 that saw Christ or one of the people that were directly trained by the apostles in the cities that they went to. And you see this not just in exterior sources saying, oh, you know those apostles from the Bible? They appointed us. They appointed successors. They passed down the faith. People on the outside saying that. No, you see that confirmed and stated clearly in Scripture. Timothy, 2 Timothy, we just read. He's exhorting Timothy who he appointed. And he's telling him to teach and to evangelize, to reprove and rebuke 
to exercise long-suffering, to pastor the church at Ephesus. Why? Because my time to be offered up is approaching. Clement, who was in the city when this epistle was being written, was a part of the church that Paul was writing from. He wrote, and thus preaching through countries and cities, they, the apostles, appointed the first fruits of their labor, having first proved them by the Spirit to be overseers and deacons, ministers of those who should afterwards believe. This is a person who's writing at the same time as the New Testament. Uh, this, this epistle was probably written uh, after 70 AD, probably before 95 AD. So it's about 90 AD. John, the apostle, still kicking around. You can't kill that guy. Right? We've got the whole New Testament. And Clement, who's one of the appointees, who's, one of the, who's a member of the church, is writing to other members of the church talking about this. And he's saying, look, the apostles appointed deacons. They appointed overseers so that they could lead those who afterwards believed. Nor was this any new thing, since indeed many ages before it was written concerning bishops and deacons. Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. How many of you recognize that there is some strife on account of the office of the episcopate? I can rephrase that. How many of you recognize that there is some strife when it comes to the subject of church leadership? People have problems with every level of church leadership. Right now, the hardest thing that people argue for in some parts of the church is that there is no such thing which we have covered in some of the previous sessions. If you, have it, if you miss those, tune in to those. And we've talked about extensively the priesthood of all believers. There is a priesthood, a kingship, that each one of us walks in. But there is also special gifts that are ordained by God for different purposes. And different ones of us do not have every single one of those gifts. And so all of us need all of us in order to do the function of a body because a hand by itself is not a body. It's a hand. And a body is not made entirely of hands. If you don't mind me paraphrasing the Apostle Paul because he said, is the whole body eyes. Thank God it's not. That wouldn't be a body at all. It'd be a pile of eyes. Right? But, you know, that's not new. People having issues, people have issues with every level of any kind of spiritual leadership. People have issues with a, their, their local pastor. Right? The most basic. They have issues with elders. They have issues with deacons. They have issues with armor bearers telling them that they can't sit alone in the back of the church. It's totally natural and human to have issues because people have opinions. They have attitudes. They want, they want to do what they want to do. Right? 
But here we have someone writing in the first century saying the apostles knew that there would be strife regarding the office of the overseers, regarding the elders that were appointed. They knew that. For this reason, therefore, since they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those ministers already mentioned and afterwards gave instructions that when these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed them in their ministry. Now, is that strange? No, that's how we do everything in any organized group of people. If you got a group of people together and the leader is not, uh, you know, the leader is going home to be with the Lord and he appoints someone else to take care of it and to appoint someone else before they go home to be with the Lord, that's a completely normal way to run some kind of organization. But we are not taught in some parts of the world this in a way where you see it like a lineage. In many, to- in many ways, people look at this early church period as, and I said this before, as an almost mythological thing. Because they say, oh, we want to be like the early church. We want to have what the early church had. We want to do what the early church did. And we do, and we say those things. And we have what the early church had. And we do the things that the early church did. And we are preaching for and believing for and raising people up for the purpose that we will have a more corporate experience of that thing. Because it's not enough that one or two or three or ten or a hundred or a thousand Christians are walking in what the early church walked in. The body of Christ is supposed to be lifted up, operating as one perfect man. The body of Christ is supposed to be edified. The purpose of ministry gifts, listed in the Bible, the purpose of pastors and teachers, of apostles, of evangelists, the purpose is the edification of the body of Christ until we all come into a perfect man. So I'm not saying that we should not attain to what the early church walked in, that we should not look toward what the early church walked in, and that we shouldn't recognize when our experience is different from the promise that God gave us. No, you need to recognize that. You better recognize when what God promised you isn't what you're walking in. And you better stand up and say, no, I will not settle for something that is not what God promised me. But if you do not realize that those people that lived in that time were people empowered by God to walk in what they walked in, then you will not believe that you are capable of walking in what they walked in. These were, these were not... Pastor Christie said, it is not the Lord's responsibility to override your will. The Lord does not override anyone's will. The Lord gives you the, you the decision. He says, this day, life and death are put in front of you. You choose... 
So these people weren't some group of people that the Lord sovereignly possessed so that he could show us what the church looked like and we could never get there. No, these were people. Timothy was a human being, just like Paul was a human being. And I said this before, you got a whole lot of people in the church that will get offended at the very suggestion that you can walk on the levels the, the level the apostles walked on. They get offended and they think you're lifted up in pride. And they say, how do you think that you could walk like the apostles walked? Meanwhile, the Bible tells us to walk like Jesus walked. Paul's not greater than Jesus. Peter's not greater than Jesus. Our end goal is not even walk like the apostles walked. It's walking in the same works and greater works than Jesus walked in. And so our ceiling is not the apostles. Our ceiling is the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, which let me tell you, being that he is infinite, that's not a ceiling at all. Right? That's an invitation to no limitation. But if you don't recognize that those people that God worked through in that first century were just like the human being sitting next to you today and sitting with you at home, then you will not be able to believe that you can walk in what they walked in. The, the early church was not some abstract entity. It was a church. It was churches in all of these cities that together were one body of believers, one body of Christ. It was, it was a church made up of human beings. You know, that's hard. That's hard for people today because people don't trust human beings. The, the, one of the most common things that you'll hear people say is, I, I don't follow man, I follow God. Which we won't get into how unbiblical that is, you know, when Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. But, you know, there's no following God, like I, like I said before, when, I, when we talked to Steve a little bit. There's no follow. you're not the body of Christ by yourself. You're a member of the body of Christ. And so one part of the body can't say to the other parts of the body, I don't need you, I have nothing to do with you, right? So we know that that's unbiblical. But it's not just knowing that. It's knowing that God has ordained, has chosen, has, has decided to work the work of God through us, through people, through human beings, not as we're all sinners, fallen man, pathetic human beings, and the Lord can sovereignly make us do something good. No, because he's called us to become something greater than simply natural human beings. He recreated us into a new level of life. But before being born again, Every single one of those people that we read about in the New Testament and those people that we know from historical fact came after those people were regular human beings who were born again. Many of them were pagans. Many of them were heathens. 
Many of them were, were Hebrews or other groups of people, but the point is, all of them were people. And so it would have been just as easy for you to stand in front of Polycarp, the disciple of John, who learned at the feet of the apostle John, and say, I follow no man. Who do you think you are? You think you're as good as John? Well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're as good as John? Do you think that you can attain to that? Because I say you can. Because the word of God says you can. Because we are called to walk in that. Listen, the end time church needs to be greater than the first century church. The end time church is prophesied by God to be greater than the first century church. And so how can you walk in that if you don't recognize that God changed them in the same way that he can change you? And if you see yourself and you see the modern world and you see the time we're living in as reality and you see the, old, the New Testament as some Aesop, some fable, some age where things were different, like a pre-scientific age, then you will not walk in what they walked in. You will not receive that new birth in the same way that they received that new birth. You won't walk like they walked. And people have a problem with people. People have a problem with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is the worst thing that you can have as the body of Christ. The word of God tells us that, you know, and we talk about it. Without, you could do everything, but without love, it's meaningless. What do you think that love looks like? Is that, is God's love an abstract love, like a concept of love, or is it actual love? Does God actually love you, or does he love you in the abstract? No, God knows you better than anyone else knows you, and he still actually loves you. The love that God has for you is personal. It's more personal than the love that you have for your neighbor because God knows you more personally than you know your neighbor. He knows you more personally than you know yourself. And he'll show you what he knows about you. He will show you if you allow him to so that you can know who he made you to be, so that you can know who you truly are, who he knows you are, who he believes you are. But that love that he has is a personal thing, and we're called to walk in that love. How can we walk in that love if we have a problem with people? Ministry is to people. Teaching is to people. Edification is to people. We are, the church is made out of people. It's not a building. It's not a a book. It is living people filled with the Holy Spirit. He made us the temple. He, He made us the temple and he moved into us. 
And I'm not telling you something you don't know, but I need you to know it better than you've known it before. Why do you think the Lord said, everything you do for even one of these little ones you do for me? What do you think happens when you look at someone who Jesus Christ died for and redeemed and moved into and you got an attitude about them? You got a problem with them and the Lord is living on the inside of them. Listen. If someone is in error in their doctrine, in their theology, if they're speaking something that is the word of the devil, love dictates you correct them. Correction doesn't come out of a place of pride. Correction comes out of a place of love. You don't correct your children if you're a good parent because you're impressed with yourself out of a place of pride or out of a place of trying to push them down or out of a place of having a problem with them. No, you do it because you love them and you know things that they don't know yet. And you're attempting to impart to them the truth that you have learned so that they can avoid the mistakes that you probably made in the past. Or that you saw other people make. You know, Anybody can learn from their own mistakes. It takes a genius to learn from other people's. Right? These are people. These are human beings. The apostles were people. The apostles were fishermen and tax collectors and normal Joes until the Lord got a hold of them. Just like every single member of the body of Christ was a normal everyday person until the Lord got a hold of them. Well, listen, if you can't recognize the gift of God that is on your brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you can't have a love for them that comes from God, then you're not a Christian. Because the, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. Listen, the Bible says if you say that you love God and you don't love your brother, you are lying. So if you don't have the love of God for your brother and sister in the Lord, then you're not a Christian because you're not Christ-like. And I don't care if people are mean to you, if people persecute you, if people come against you. Your greatest care should be for their good. Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. When he was being subjected to the worst treatment that any human being has ever faced, and he was completely innocent. Why do you think that we're told to pray for our enemies? Paul says in this scripture... He says concerning one person that resisted him, may he be rewarded according to his works, who was an enemy of the gospel of Christ. But to other people that did not receive him when he preached the word, he said, may this not be laid to their charge. He 
prayed for their salvation, even though they rejected his words. Because he didn't care about him or his pride. He cared about their eternal souls. He cared about them and their relationship with God. Because God died for them. He knew just like God died for him. That's love. That's love. And that's why love casteth out fear. That is why love vaunteth not itself. That is why love is as powerful as it is because it's not about you anymore. It is about that person. It is about that person. It doesn't matter if they're impressed with you. It matters if they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I don't just mean making a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord one time. I mean when they are destitute, they come to the knowledge that the Lord will make them wealthy. When they are sick, they come to the knowledge that the Lord has provided them supernatural health. When you see people suffering and you have the love of God, you preach to them the answer. You preach to them the answer. Listen, We are supposed to dwell in unity with each other. We are supposed to be a family with each other. We are supposed to love each other. That is what the church is. Not in some sappy human way, but in a supernatural way. Being empowered by God to have a love that is beyond any human ability or understanding. A selfless love. And being empowered by God to deal with things that are natural and things that are spiritual with the supernatural power of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what the church is called to. That's what those people walked in. Those people that were human beings who were called by God. And I said it before when I was talking about the apostolic generation. You have more in common with those people living all those years ago than you have with non-believers who are living today. No change in style of clothing. No change in styles of building construction. No amount of smartphones makes you different on a fundamental level from them. And if, if you read anything that was written, I mean, how many of you realize when you read the Bible, it is relevant to every moment of your life? And that's not because mankind has changed. That is because the only change that mankind can have is that which God brings. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what kind of technological advancements or what kind of legal advancements happen. There's still man, unregenerate. They're still walking in that same sin nature that the pagans were walking in. That the people since the fall of Adam were walking in. And so salvation came to us, but God did not decide that he was just going to have a personal relationship with one person. He did not just hand down tablets of stone from the mountain when it comes to the New Testament. He did not uh, uh, institute 
a organization in which, let me figure out how to phrase this so you don't get upset at me. He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he sat down on the right hand of the Father waiting. He said to the people of God, go and preach to every creature. Heal the sick, cast out devils, free preach. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He gave us a mission. He gave human beings a mission. Born again human beings, recreated human beings, people that have very little in common with the fallen man of sin. A mission, and then he sat down and said, I'm waiting. Now, listen, Dr. Harfouche talked about this on Friday night, and if you miss that, why? It's, it's, it's online. We have the means of technology. It's very easy after this for you to click over there and watch that, and if you missed it, connect. We had, we had nearly 50,000 people with us while we were live. And he said... You know, he was talking about the fact that the Lord doesn't have to go anywhere to get there, right? Just because the Lord is seated, it doesn't mean he's not working. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the Lord, in his wisdom, which is greater than man's wisdom, because if you were going by man's wisdom, you wouldn't have done this, decided that the people of God should be the ones to redeem the world. That regenerated humanity would be the ones who he would give the power to and send out to preach the gospel to the world. That we would be his deputies, his messengers, his ambassadors. And that is why the devil has worked so hard to give Christians a problem with other Christians. Listen, people don't trust people naturally. In the natural, in the world, people do not trust people. But God had faith in you. God had faith in the new birth. God had faith in what he handed us. And so he did hand it to us. He said it is better for you that I go because if I don't go I can't hand you this mission I can't hand you this power I can't endue you with this power clothe you with this power and he gave us a commission to go and do and you got ignorant people with no concept of what the church is or what Jesus died for, saying, oh, the church is just a human institution made by people. I don't believe in organized religion because the church is just a human institution made by people. Listen, the church was founded by Jesus Christ, who is a human 
and also God. And then it was handed to the new humanity. It was handed to the new humanity. And he sent his apostles and his apostles raised up disciples and sent them the same way that he did, the way they were taught to by him. Just like he sent them, they sent us. They sent people into the world to preach the gospel. And it is through that that the whole world was reached in just a few hundred years, despite the worst persecution that the church has ever faced. It all occurred in those first few hundred years. But that is the first few hundred years when we destroyed paganism and took the whole planet. Why? Because the devil can't stand up against the power of God. It's not complicated, right? There is no power that can stand against the power of God. And so we just took over because we had power because we were endued with power. But how many of you know that those people that did that were sent by the Lord to do it? It wasn't all accomplished during the lifetime of the apostles. You know, the New Testament would read way different if that was the message that we were being handed, that the apostles were singularly powered, empowered in a special way and that we can't walk in what they walked in. It would have been very easy for them to say that. But they didn't say that even one time. The apostles weren't such as I have is for me because you can't have what I have with the Lord. They were such as I have give I unto you people. They handed down the faith to generation after generation. And these days you can't even talk about it without people thinking about priests, without people thinking about earth, without people thinking about governments, without people thinking about stuff they got issues with. Listen, if we can't talk about the way that the early church lived and worked and operated, we'll never live and work and operate in it. We never will. The truth is the truth, even if it makes you uncomfortable. If the truth makes you uncomfortable, it's time to change, baby. Time to change your attitude and actions. The truth will set you free from yourself and your opinions and your attitude and give you God's opinions and God's attitude and God's nature. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the power that was given to the apostles that was handed to the next generation and that we have received today. We're talking about the faith that was once delivered that we earnestly contend for. How many of you think it's relevant to know how the church lived if you're trying to live like the church? Yeah. 
Lord, help us. Right? Right? Listen. Okay. Just, just, you don't even have to turn there. Just hear me out here because I don't have a ton of time. Acts 13. Tell me if you're familiar with this scripture. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Were there, were there just the apostles in Antioch? Listen, everybody's all about the apostle Paul. You, the, you, get, you hear it again and again. It's the least creative response I've ever heard. Oh, you call yourself apostle. You think you're as good as Paul. Nobody talks about Barnabas. When it came time to found the church of Antioch, who went and got Paul and said, hey, come on with me to Antioch? It was Barnabas. Nobody's like, oh, you think you're as good as Barnabas. <laughs> he was not he was not referred to as the apostle Paul at that time. Listen, the apostle Paul was called by God. He was sent by God. His ordination was supernatural, but what is the historical uh context of that call? <laughs> Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simon the Black. Which Simon? The Black one. And Lucius of Serene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Shaul, the Apostle Paul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, who did he say it to? Did he say it to Paul? Was Paul like, hey, everybody here, the Holy Ghost just spoke to me because I'm the Apostle Paul. No, the Holy Ghost spoke to all those people, some of which you know nothing about other than that they were prophets and teachers at Antioch because they're recorded right here. How many powerful men and women of God do you think preached the gospel and did miracles and cast out devils all over the world whose names you've never heard? Paul did not have a live stream that the Gentiles could connect to wherever they were so that he could preach to everyone all over the world at the same time. No, he had to raise up disciples. He had to raise up disciples and send them. That's what the church is. That's why there's members in particular of a body. Sorry if I'm like a broken record. This is my job. The Lord said, I am here for the edification of the body of Christ until we all come into the unity of the faith unto one perfect man. So I'm sorry if I'm harping on this. This is why I'm here. This is why I exist. The Lord made me for this cause to come and harp on this issue. (laughs) 
as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. My God, can you imagine having the honor of the Lord, the Lord giving you the honor of laying hands on Barnabas and Paul and sending them to the work that the Lord called them to. The Lord called them. He said, separate them unto the work that I have called them to. They weren't called by man. They weren't called by Simon. They weren't called by Manaean, right? But who laid hands on them? Who did the Lord speak to? Because see, the Lord gives us the honor of working with him. The Lord works through his people, the church, because that is the message that he is preaching to the world. That is what the good news is. That the Lord will remake you. That he will transform you. That he will empower you. And so the Christian does not live for themselves. They do not own themselves. They are the servants of the Lord, but we work with God. God's not doing anything that he's not doing through his prophets and through his church because we're the ones who he gave the call, right? And separate them where unto the work I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they being sent, the word apostello, forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus and so on and so forth. And Paul began his missionary journeys. Paul began founding churches all over the place. We owe a bunch of those New Testament churches whose epistles we read in church every week to Simon and Manaean and the other prophets at the Antioch that laid hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them, that heard of the Lord when the Lord directed them to do that. Listen, Jesus physically appeared to Paul. Do you think Jesus could have physically appeared to him and said, hey, Go to Seleucia. Of course. Of course he could. He does that kind of thing. But no, he set a precedent. He set a precedent by showing that those who had received the gospel from the Lord who had been appointed by the apostles, who were leaders in the church, are the instruments by which God shows what his calling is. That we are partakers in this body, the church. That we are the members of his body, the church. Because listen, if we're the body, and Jesus Christ wants to lay hands on somebody... What's this attached to? Is this attached to the head? Do we lay heads on people? (laughs) 
lay hands on people. It's just like the word of God says that we advance by stepping on scorpions and snakes. What foot is crushing that work of the enemy? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So listen, listen, okay? The Lord knows that there are going to be and always will be people who are motivated by the devil to try and tear apart the church, to try and institute and preach things that are against what Christ preached. And so the only way for us to dwell in unity is for us to be a body. A body has different functions, it has different members. Governments are described by Paul as a gift of the spirit in the church. The appointees who are placed as heads and teachers and leaders is supernatural. That's not an earthly government, even though the earth has governments. It is a divine act of the Lord. It is a supernatural thing. And just like he said, separate Barnabas and Saul unto me for the work unto where I have called them. How many of you realize that no man can call you to be a pastor? That no man can call you to be a bishop or a deacon or a leader if God did not call you? Then you don't have the gift to do that work. And the gift of government in the church is a supernatural gift. The Bible says God has placed that in the church. Just God has placed that in the church. How has he placed it in the church? The same way that God established Saul and Barnabas as apostles in front of the whole church by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The church leaders acknowledged what was the call of God on them. And Paul did not try to usurp and claim something that was not confirmed by other men and women of God who were prophetic and empowered by the Lord. And so people say, well, oh, you know, the, the, the Jesus, I follow Jesus, right? Religion is man's thing that man created, not this religion, not Christ's religion, not pure religion. It was founded by God. It was empowered by God. And it was given to the new man. So if you don't believe in the new man, then you shouldn't believe in the church. But if you believe in the new man, if you believe that the work of salvation is real and actual and changes the nature and the capabilities of a human being, then you have no excuse to not believe in the church. Because it is not by the will of, just like Paul said, no scripture came by the will of man. It came by the will of God. By the will of God. You know, 
both Ignatius and Polycarp, who we talked about, quote Paul and call it Scripture. Just like you do. You quote Paul and call it Scripture. You say no Scripture came by the will of man, it came by the will of God. The New Testament is inspired by God. But whose hand wrote that letter? And so, yes, the Lord wrote the New Testament, but he wrote it through the new man, through empowered people of God, through his disciples and his apostles. My goodness. Polycarp wrote, and this was, this was a little bit after John had passed away. This is a little bit after John had gone home to be with the Lord because he was the only one of the 12 that wasn't martyred. They tried. They attempted to boil him in oil, but he wouldn't burn. Right? And when that, that, when that didn't work out, they banished him to an island somewhere. That's a good way to deal with your problems. <laughs> right? Polycarp wrote, neither I nor any other such one, when he was writing to the Ephesians, no, to the Philippians. He's writing to the Philippians, and he says, listen, I'm not trying to tell you something like I'm telling you what to do, because you're the Philippians. Paul taught there. Paul established you. Paul wrote letters to you, right? He said, this is just... Just after John has gone home to be with the Lord, neither I nor any other such one, I'm not telling you what to do because neither I nor any such one can come up to the wisdom of the blessed and glorified Paul. He went among you accurately and steadfastly taught the word of truth in the presence of those who were then alive. And when absent from you, he wrote you a letter which if you carefully study, you will find to be the means of building you up in that faith which has been given to you. He wrote that. He wrote, it is declared then in the scriptures, be angry and sin not, which is Psalms, Psalms 4, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. That's Ephesians. This is a man who sat under the apostle John who did not burn when he got put in oil. And he said it's written in the scriptures and then quoted Paul. Now how well established do you think that the New Testament would have had to have been for someone not to call him a blasphemer? But everybody knew the grace of God that worked through Paul. And everybody in the early church knew that that was the call of the church, to operate supernaturally in the grace of God. And so what Paul wrote to the Ephesians wasn't the will of Paul. It wasn't the word of Paul. 
Now, you can look at the grammar and the structure and the argumentation and see that the Lord was working through Paul in a way that he didn't work through other people because Paul was an individual. Paul was a member in particular of the body of Christ. He was not like other people, but it was not according to his will that he wrote to the Ephesians. He wrote to the Ephesians prophetically. And people who were living at that time knew that that letter that he wrote was scripture. That that letter that he wrote was the word of God, even though it was written by him. It had the flavor of the way that he spoke on it. It was spoken using his soul that the Lord renewed. That God did not just deliver a book on golden tablets from heaven. That he wrote his word on the tablets, the hearts of his disciples and his apostles so that they preached. And when they preached, it wasn't enticing words of man's wisdom. When they preached, it wasn't what Paul was saying. When they preached, it wasn't what John was saying. When they preached, they preached Christ. Not about him. They preached Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, I said all that because you gotta, because these days people are so hung up about human beings that they cannot hear a miracle that is done by the hands of a human and not try to tear it down. When they hear, oh, you laid hands on someone and they got healed, why do you think you're so special? Look at these crazy people over here. They think they're filled with the Spirit of God. Yes, we're Christians. That's what the Bible says, right? I say all that because... I'm going to read you some things about the early church that are not included in the New Testament because they are further beyond that period. The people that were quoting the New Testament, the people that the New Testament was written to, which is us, but back then. And I don't want you to think that I'm being weird. So I had to do all that preaching so that you would understand that what I'm going to read you is not strange. That's how hard that subconscious divide is in the modern church between them and the apostles. They hear what the apostles did. Nobody questions that John did not boil when they put him in oil. Because it's John. It's the same argument as, but that was Jesus. Who are you? Who are you called to be like? How are you called to live? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so listen, we don't quote children of God throughout the ages in order to replace the scriptures. If I came up here today and preached something to you that was not the word of God, you would throw it out. You would say, no, that is not what the word of God said. That is not Christian. That is not in the Bible. That is not in agreement with the word of God. If somebody wrote a book today and gave it to you, 
E.W. Kenyon or someone like that, right? And you read it and it agrees with the word of God, you can say, this is good. This agrees with the word of God. This makes some things really clear. And you can hand it to another Christian and say, read this, it will build your faith. Is that because it's the book of Kenyon chapter 10 verse seven? No, it's not because you're adding to what the faith that was once delivered to the saints is. It's because it is a confirmation. It is because there was not a time of prophets that ended. It's because there was not a time of being able to speak effectually on the word of God that ended. It's because people continue today to be imbued with those gifts. And they will continue to be imbued with those gifts until such time as the church comes into the fullness of the faith. Until such time as the church is in perfect unity, walking in the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, which obviously hasn't happened yet. Either of those things. Right? And so those giftings did not end in the church. And so just like Dr. Harfouche, just like men of God today can come speak to you and make those scriptures live in you. All throughout the history of the church, men of God, empowered by God, have been speaking and expounding and building up the word of God. And some of you might have heard some of the things that have been said that are powerful and that expound the word, even hundreds of years after the apostles left. It does not weaken what's available to the church. Time does not weaken what is available to the church. And so I want to read to you some... Maybe I'll, maybe, I don't know if I have time to, I have so much, I have so much. And we have for weeks now been going through just layer after layer after layer on the authority of the early church, the power of the early church. We talked about, we've talked about all kinds of things over the past weeks and there is just an infinite amount of depth. There is so much to cover. I I just want to make sure that I get what I need to get over to you today, and there will be more time for me to get more over to you. But, I, but so listen, I have, I have too much, way more than I could ever cover today, unless we, like we talked about last week, had like a Paul gathering where he preached until midnight and then someone fell out the window and died after falling asleep. And then he preached until morning after he raised them from the dead. We could do that. I'm sure that would be very edifying, but I, that's not what I have been uh, commanded to do by my father in the faith who gave me delegated authority and a specific mission to you this morning. So I'm not going to do that, okay? <clears throat> Before, but, yeah, okay, 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 all right. Just to reiterate the context of what we're talking about here, we have the Church of Jerusalem, right? The first church that's founded after Jerusalem is the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch was located in what is now uh, uh, northern, like it's like 
it's like Turkey. It's like southern, southeastern Turkey, right? But at the time was not southeastern Turkey. Turkey didn't exist. Turkeys existed. <laughs> but not the nation of Turkey. Uh, not the country, right? So Antioch was founded. Paul's laid hands on. He's sent out with Barnabas. Then you have the church of Ephesus that's founded. And at the church of Ephesus, you have bishops. And you have some of those bishops raised up under John, the apostle, who moves to Ephesus and lives at Ephesus. You imagine having John, the apostle, in your church? That was probably really awesome. You know, it's probably really awesome. But you know what? Maybe at that time, there was people that weren't that impressed with that. Because it wasn't like John the Apostle. It was like John, that guy sitting over there. <laughs> he wasn't the only eyewitness of Christ that was in the church of Ephesus. There was a great many people who were among the 500 that saw Jesus after his resurrection that were living in Ephesus. But I, I'm pretty sure, you know, John, the author of John, the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he called himself. <laughs> Two of the people that were raised up under John at Ephesus were Ignatius and Polycarp. Ignatius went on to become, to go to Antioch and become the Bishop of Antioch. He was from Antioch, but he came and learned under the Apostle John at Ephesus, which was like 650, 700 miles away from Antioch. So it's quite a trip. It's, it's a lot longer than most people go for camp meetings nowadays. But he learned under John at Ephesus, right? And Polycarp was born at Ephesus, and was raised up under the teaching of John at Ephesus. And eventually, he was sent north about 100 miles or so to Smyrna, where he was appointed a bishop. And there were bishops at Ephesus that were obviously trained up under John. And so you have these churches, these people that remember before John passed away, just like you might have been in a meeting with R.W. Schambach before he passed away, right? Except these people were the direct disciples of John, raised up by John, the way that some of you are disciples in this ministry, right? Polycarp went on to train a disciple, actually at Ephesus before he went to Smyrna, who is known as Irenaeus. Irenaeus was then sent, are you guys noticing a pattern of how this, this you know, goes? We're going to establish a church over here, send this guy. We're going to establish a church over here, send this guy. Irenaeus, after being trained by Polycarp, so John trained Polycarp, Polycarp trained Irenaeus. He was sent to Lyons, which is in now France. What's, now, what's today France? And we have writings from Irenaeus. We have writings from Polycarp. We have writings from Ignatius. We have writings from Clement. Ignatius, Polycarp, and Clement are the three people that we have a significant amount of writings from who were trained directly by the apostles. Right? Okay. Just like... We don't have anything from Barnabas. We don't have anything from Euodius, who you've probably never heard of. But, that, but that's my point, is he was a bishop in Antioch that we don't have any writings from. 
he, you know, for whatever reason. Irenaeus wrote about Polycarp, I could describe the very place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and taught. He wrote this after Polycarp was martyred. He's his going out and coming in. The whole tenor of his life, his personal appearance, how he would speak of the conversations he had held with John and the others who had seen the Lord. How did he make mention of their words and of whatever he had heard of them respecting the Lord? And so you have generations of people that have been handed down the faith. Do you think Irenaeus saw the New Testament as some separate thing from him? He was raised up by Polycarp who would tell him stories about the Apostle John all the time. Right? Well, you should feel the same way because the only distance that you have from the New Testament is time, which certainly doesn't impress God who has not changed. So, I want to read you some from the martyrdom of Polycarp. Now, the martyrdom of Polycarp was not written by Polycarp. It was written by other church men and women. I don't know. It's not clear. A group of church people from Smyrna, the church that he was the bishop over, to the other churches. They went with him when he was taken, with, taken to Rome to be martyred. They were eyewitnesses of the martyrdom. And so they wanted to communicate to the other churches what had happened. Just like Stephen was martyred and the New Testament records what happened when he was martyred, right? We don't have eyewitness accounts of all of the martyrdoms of the apostles. We have smaller amounts of information. But we have this eyewitness account of the martyrdom of Polycarp. So he, they wrote to the other churches. And this is, this is what they wrote uh, in, in about 150. So this is uh, maybe 80, 90 years after Paul was martyred. It's about 50 years after John went home to be with the Lord and Timothy went home to be with the Lord. Uh, and it's after Polycarp was martyred. The church of God which sojourns at Smyrna to the church of God sojourning in Philomelium and to all the congregations of the holy and Catholic, the words universal in Greek, church in every place, mercy, peace, and love from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. Are any of you interested in hearing something that Christians wrote in 150? about a man of God. Now, I could read you the writings of Polycarp himself. We have some of those as well. But this is from the church that was in Smyrna. And they're writing to the whole church, they say. The global church. They're writing to the global church. We have written to you, brethren, as to what relates to the martyrs, and especially to the blessed Polycarp, who put an end to the persecution having, as it were, set a seal upon it by his martyrdom. For almost all the events that happened previously took place that the Lord might show us from above a martyrdom becoming of the gospel. 
For he waited to be delivered up, even as the Lord had done, that we also might become his followers, while we look not merely at what concerns ourselves, but have regard also to our neighbors. For it is the part of a true and well-founded love, not only to wish oneself to be saved, but also all of the brethren. And so they're writing in a time where for over a hundred years at this point, the church has been heavily persecuted. It's less, it's about 90, 84 years since the persecution of Nero that we read the historical report about last week. And during that time, there has been multiple major persecutions, including under uh, Dormition, who banished John to the Isle of Patmos, right? Now, what are they talking about here with the martyrs? Because in our modern times, it can be very weird to hear someone talk about someone who's being martyred and then say we should follow his example. Right? That's, it's not exactly something that you're seeking out. Well, listen, they go into more detail about this, and they talk about, they talk about the martyrs in glowing terms, because by their, but this is what people were facing at that time. They would be taken up by the authorities and they would be horribly tortured under the threat of death to renounce Christ and they refused to do so. Now, how many of you know that you will only have good things to say about someone that's in that position? That someone who's in that position truly must be a child of God. And they go into it and they talk about the fact that despite the tortures that were placed upon them, they went through them as if they were unhurt because truly their souls were already in the hand of God, just like Christ gave up the ghost. And then they give a couple of examples. They speak about a holy martyr who did not seek to be martyred, but when they come and when they came and took him, he stood fast and was martyred and was a good example. And then they talk about someone who sought to be martyred. And do you know what happened to him? He became an apostate. He convinced some of the Christians who were currently in the underground church to come out publicly and profess who they were. And the other Christians stood fast but under torture, he renounced Christ. And so they say, don't seek after martyrdom. So even though they say we should follow the example of Polycarp, they say that Polycarp did not seek to be martyred. He just would not deny who was the Lord. Right? How many of you know that in a time when Christians are being fed to lions, you're going to have a, a commonly... Like, this is a normal thing that's happening on a regular basis. The way you talk about martyrdom is going to be very different from someone living thousands of years later under the incredible privilege of being in a place where martyrdom is not common. Now, it's not a time when martyrdom is not common because there are places in the world where martyrdom is extremely common today. Right? But, you know, I digress. He ta- they talk about Germanicus, who was martyred and was a good martyr. We like Germanicus. And after he was martyred, uh, uh, after he was martyred, his martyrdom was so open 
that the people at his martyrdom called for Polycarp to be taken. So they knew who Polycarp was. He was the leader of the Christians in Smyrna. And he was illustrious enough. He was well-known enough that when they weren't satisfied with how Germanicus died, they said, go get us Polycarp. Right? Now, a couple things happen. They go, uh, they go through it. They say when Polycarp heard that they were seeking after to martyrdom, he wasn't concerned. And he just kind of went about his daily life and did whatever. But the Christians at Smyrna eventually, after much ur- urging, convinced him to go out to a country place and, and, and stay there until sort of the, the fuzz stopped looking for him. Right? Now, he didn't want to, but he was like, okay, fine. So he goes out there, but one of the people there who was a servant betrayed his location. They, they, they snitched. Take your time, Reverend John. Okay. They betrayed his location. They snitched on him, right? And so they came to take him. His pursuers then, along with horsemen, and taking the youth with them, meaning the youth who betrayed him, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation with their usual weapons, as if they were going out against a robber. So they came armed to arrest him despite the fact that he wasn't going to resist arrest. They came with their weapons as if he was a common robber, and having come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain house from which he might have escaped into another place, but he refused, saying, the will of God be done. So when he heard that they had come, he went down and spoke with them, came to his house, he came downstairs and spoke with them. And as those were present, marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, was so much effort made to capture such a venerable man? Venerable, of course, means aged, but it also means wise. It also means worthy of honor. And so the soldiers that were sent to arrest him marveled at his manner. He came down, he talked to them. Uh, Immediately then, at the very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them. He was like, get these people something to eat. As much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours. If any of you prayed and could not cease, to the astonishment of those who heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. This is someone who's being arrested by soldiers from the empire that's been martyring Christians. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, having made mention of all that he had come in contact with him, both small and great, 
illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole global church throughout the world, the time of his departure having arrived, they set him upon a donkey and conducted him into the city, the day being Sabbath. And I'm going to skip a bit. They, uh, they brought him, well, we'll read this. And the Aaronarch, Herod, accompanied by his father, Nicetes, met him. And taking him up into their chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasion, and so to make sure of your safety? What would it hurt you to honor Caesar, to call Caesar Lord, to burn incense to Caesar. If you do that, you'll be spared. It's fine, right? These people sound like the devil. But he at first gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. It's a very... <laughs> It's very polite. <laughs> so they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg. They, they physically threw him out of the chariot. Now, Polycarp at this time, we don't know his specific age because he says, I have served the Lord for 87 years. So we don't know if that means he was 87 or if that means he had been a minister for 87 years, right? He's been around some time. But without being disturbed and is as if feeling nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste and was conducted to the stadium this is not where you want to go. Where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. I want to remind you, this is being written by those that went with him when he was taken. People from the church of Smyrna that were with him when he was taken to be martyred. Giving a report of what happened to the other churches. Because obviously it wasn't broadcast on, you know, C-SPAN. Now, as Polycarp was entering the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke, but those of the brethren who were present heard the voice. And they say this right after they say it was so loud in the stadium that you couldn't hear yourself talk. But they all heard this voice from the Lord. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to your old age. And other similar things, according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, Repent and say, away with the atheists. Now I told you, they called Christians atheists at the time. Because Christians did not worship their gods. 
right? But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them, said, Away with the atheists! (laughs) Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ, Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretend not to know who and what I am, Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. Hallelujah. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. But he answered, call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. Now, I just want to repeat, this is the old man who met the soldiers that were coming to arrest him and fed them and spoke with them, and prayed with them for two hours, so that they were repenting for what they were doing, because of how peaceful, and venerable, and wise this man was. But you put him in front of the proconsul, and the old man is speaking the word. Hallelujah. This was not a weak person. This was not someone who was, you know, losing his uh, speech because of his age, or something like that. This was someone who they had to martyr because guess what? He was preaching the gospel. He was walking like the apostles. They killed the apostles and it didn't end the church. Right? Because guess what? They weren't the last ones. There were other sent ones. There was a lineage of sent ones. Right? But again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing that you despise or that you do not consider the wild beasts if you will not repent. Okay, fine. You don't like beasts? How about some fire? But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. My God. While he spoke these and many other like things, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace, so that not 
that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium thrice, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation uh, having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jew who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, this is the teacher of Asia. This is the father of the Christians, the overthrower of our gods, who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out, And they brought Philip the Asiarch to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. Philip was a ruler in Asia, an Asiarch. Okay, just helping you out. It's a weird word. Um, But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing that the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Listen, we already fed people to lions. That We already did that. That's not where we are in the calendar. You're going to have to wait for the next scheduled lion feeding event. The lions are all full. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burnt alive. For thus it behooved the vision which was revealed to him. Now, I didn't mention this earlier. He said to those that were with him when he was in the country that he had had a dream that he would be burned. So he was already prepared, right? Now, how many of you know that this is not something that he'd never heard of before? His own teacher, John, they boiled in oil and he did not die. We know about the three Hebrew children in the furnace. That is our God who we serve. Polycarp was a man who was very up in years. But he was a bold man who was not about to back down, right? He had a supernatural faith of what was going to happen, right? And so this then was carried into effect with greater speed than it was spoken. The multitudes immediately gathering together wood and sticks out of the shops and baths. Uh, And then when the funeral pile was ready, Polycarp, laying aside all his garments and loosening his girdle, sought also to take off his sandals, a thing which he was not accustomed to, inasmuch as every one of the faithful sought to take off his sandals, because they were always eager to touch him. They talk about it elsewhere. It's because they believed that he had efficacy for miracles in his body. So, who is this person who they're treating like one of the apostles? Like the rags were taken from Paul's body and healed the sick. Like the shadow of Peter healed people. This is a disciple of disciples. This is an apostle sent by the apostles. This is the teacher of Asia. The overthrower of the gods. And... uh, Immediately then they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pyre. But when they were also to fix him to the funeral pyre with nails, he said, leave me as I am. 
For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me, without sure securing me by nails, to remain without moving in the pyre. You can light this fire, I'm not going anywhere. They did not nail him then, but simply bound him. And he placing his hands behind him and being bound like a distinguished ram taken out of the great flock for sacrifice, looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you had counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I shall have part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption by the Holy Ghost. This man is preaching a message while he is bound in front of the Colosseum to be burned. Among whom may I be accepted this day before you as an acceptable sacrifice, according as you, the ever truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise you for all things. I bless you, I glorify you, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. He's got the whole Trinity in there. He's ready to go. When he had pronounced this amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it beheld a great miracle. And having been preserved, that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship, was filled with wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And so the fire went up like a circle, like a sail around his body without touching him. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Hallelujah. Like Stephen. Like Stephen who was transfigured when he was stoned. Right? Moreover, we we perceived a sweet smell coming from the pile as if frankincense or some precious spices had been smoking there. You know, they mentioned earlier that after his martyrdom, the persecution had stopped. That no one had been martyred since him. It was like he put a seal on the persecution with his martyrdom. I could see why. Because after that happens, you're not going to be like (laughs) raring to go for more martyrs, right? At length, 
when these wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger or with a spear. And on doing this, there came forth from his left side a great quantity of blood so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. Hallelujah. Of whom this most admirable Polycarp was one, having in our own times being an apostolic and prophetic teacher and bishop of the church which is in Smyrna. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, you can't even throw out this account. Because do you know how it was passed down to us? If you go to the end of the letter, there's a note from the scribe who copied it. Because this letter was sent as an encyclical to all the churches around at that time. During this time when Irenaeus, Polycarp's student, was the bishop in Lyons. So this occurred while Irenaeus was in Lyons. And the note says... We wish you, brethren, all happiness. Oh, this is actually the end of the letter. We wish you, brethren, all happiness while you walk according to the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with whom be glory to God the Father and the Holy Spirit for the salvation of his holy elect, after whose example the blessed Polycarp suffered, if you can call it that. Right? If you can call it that. Let's talk about your yoke being easy and your burden being light. He didn't burn. He was transfigured before the people, right? Oh, oh yes, we'll go back to it. Following in whose steps may we too be found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? These things Caius transcribed from the copy of Irenaeus, having himself been friends with Irenaeus. And I, Socrates, transcribed at Corinth from the copy of Caius. Grace be with you all. And so the letter was sent out to all the churches, and Irenaeus kept his copy. And Caius copied his copy. Right? And Socrates, can you imagine being named Socrates? And Socrates copied Caius's copy, who he was a friend of. And this was passed down till today. This is a letter that was sent to all the churches to account what happened at the martyrdom of Polycarp. That is, I mean, that is not just supernatural. That is blatant. That is intense. Do you know, they even record, and this is how, uh, this is how uh, they are. Uh, but when the adversary of the race of the righteous... The race of the righteous. 
The envious, malicious, and wicked one perceived the impressive nature of his martyrdom and considered the blameless life he had led from the beginning and how he was now crowned with a wreath of immortality. Having beyond dispute received his reward, he did his utmost that not the least memorial of him should be taken away by us. For this end, he suggested it to Nicetes, the father of Herod. So they basically say, the devil was so upset that he told Nicetes, the father of Herod, to go and entreat the governor not to give up his body to be buried. Lest, said he, forsaking him that was crucified, they start worshiping this one. <laughs> Being ignorant of this, that it is neither possible for us ever to forsake Christ, who suffered for the salvation of such as shall be saved throughout the whole world, nor to worship any other, for him indeed, as being the Son of God, we adore. But the martyrs, as disciples and followers of the Lord, we worthily love on account of their extraordinary affection towards their king and master, of whom may we also be made companions and fellow disciples. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And so these members of the church of Smyrna witnessed what happened to their bishop when he was martyred to their teacher when he was martyred. And they said, we witnessed it and we were preserved by the Lord. Because they were at threat. If they went with him to where he was martyred, they were at threat of being found out and executed just like he was. He, they said, the Lord preserved us so that we could relay what we saw to the churches so that the churches would know what Polycarp walked in. Hallelujah. 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 Is that, is that a blessing to you? Is that a blessing? My God. My goodness. My goodness. This is why when Irenaeus wrote, when he was arguing with the heretics, we read some of his letter against heresies. He mentions the people that were trained by the apostles and how and who their successors were. Because he said, listen all you heretics. At the church of Ephesus, where John was, he trained Polycarp. And Polycarp is a true disciple of John and became the bishop of Smyrna. At the church of Antioch, Ignatius succeeded the apostles. Ignatius wrote a letter to Polycarp. We, these people were part of the church. They were living in nations with completely different cultures, completely different legal systems, completely different setups, but they were all conversing with each other. They were all sending letters to each other. They were all champions of that same faith. And Irenaeus said, none of these, none of any of the people who were trained by the apostles or the people that were trained by them 
have said any of these heretical things that you're saying. We know what the apostles taught. We know what was handed to the church. We know the faith that we have received. Why do you think Irenaeus had the boldness to say, bring a demon-possessed person in front of any Christian? Why do you think he had the boldness to be willing to fight? He said, if you bring one of the God-possessed, which means the oracles... See, the pagans had people that claimed to be possessed by the spirits of their gods, which they were, but their gods were demons. Their gods were devils. Their gods have no authority in the face of what Christ paid for for the church. He said, bring one of the God-possessed in front of a Christian, and if they, the devil doesn't get cast out of them, when the Christian casts them out, kill the Christian right then and there. I dare you. That, that's, I mean, that's not an abnormal amount of boldness for the people of God to have. Isn't that what Elijah did? Right? We're going to go up on the mountain. Okay, bring all the prophets of Baal. We're going to go up. We're going to see who answers with fire. We're going to see whose God is real. And what happened to all the prophets of Baal? Right? It's the same challenge. It's the same thing. It's the same. It is the fulfillment of the faith that Elijah was walking in. It is the fulfillment of the faith that the Old Testament patriarchs were walking in. It's the faith that we now have. And that's not an apostle that's named in the New Testament because he was young when it was written. He was, a, he was a young, well, younger man. He was probably, you know, 30-something. He was probably like, like me, right? But his teachers were the apostles. And his students, who were trained by him, walked in that same faith that he walked in. Now, why, why would someone like Polycarp be so proud to be martyred? Ignatius, who was a friend of his, who who learned under John as well, who wrote a letter to Polycarp when he, when he was on his way to be martyred. Ignatius was taken to Rome to be martyred. And on his way, he wrote letters to all the churches. Just like Paul wrote letters, right? He wrote a letter to Polycarp. They, they knew each other. Well, Ignatius talks about it. Ignatius says that he would rather be taken up and shown as an example to give faith to the children of God who are younger. Because there's a great many who are afraid because of the persecution. And so we want to show them the power of God. Do you think the children of God in the church were afraid of martyrdom after they witnessed miracles like that? After they saw what God would do? See, that's a martyrdom where the Lord preserved him from any pain, from any suffering, and made it a symbol. And he could have gone peacefully just like John did. But the way he went preached the gospel to the children of God who were alive at that time and were old enough to remember 
when the apostle John was teaching in their cities, some of whom were old enough to remember when the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and the apostle Mark and the apostle Thomas and the, all the apostles were preaching in those cities. And so you have the church of Antioch, you have the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Philippians, the church of Ephesians, the church of the Romans, the church in Alexandria, all covering the face of the earth, all preaching one gospel, all standing in the power of what makes them the race of the righteous, as those Smyrnians said. So how they marveled at what the difference was between the Christians and everyone else. You think those people were walking in the revelation of who they are? Do you think those people were human beings? Right? Polycarp was trained up. He didn't see Jesus with his own eyes. Not when Jesus was walking on the earth. But he was trained up by the apostles. And he was an heir of the bishops. Right? And he was walking in the same power and the same faith that the apostles walked in. And so the thing that, I'm, that I wanted to communicate to you today is that it's not the book of Acts as this thing over here. And the church is separate from it. It's not even a gradient of time where the people that were alive during the book of Acts lived and taught and their immediate generations afterwards. It's not some short, truncated period of time where the gospel was preached. It is a continuous line. It is a from person to person to person to person to person. And Irenaeus talks about it and he says, anyone who wishes to can search out what the succession of the churches is. He says, it would be tedious for me here to explain all the succession of all the churches. But just as an example, here's Ephesus, here's Antioch, here's Smyrna, here's Rome, right? And these are the successions of the bishops. This is who is the bishop now. He was appointed by this one who was appointed by this one who was appointed by this one. These people who were walking in this power recognized that ordination that they were ordained into. Just like Paul had hands laid on him in agreement with what his call was and was sent as an apostle, Polycarp had hands laid on him by those who had hands laid on them by Paul and he received the same level, the same power, the same call. And so there's a continuity in the church, not just because we have the Bible, but because we pass it down from generation to generation to generation, not a dead word, but a living gospel, a living good news, living epistles still today. And listen, you might not have a cause 
to be sacrificed in a Colosseum. In fact, I don't think that you, there is any places where they're still sacrificing people in Colosseums. I think we kind of nipped that one in the bud. Um, but you don't have to walk in that miracle in order to walk in the miraculous. Listen, they said Polycarp took off his own shoes, which usually he didn't do, because one of the Christians would run to do it for him because of the healing efficacy that they believed was in his body. Just like the shadow of Peter. But if someone did that today, most Christians would look at them like a crazy person. They would say, oh, you're honoring a man, you should honor God. Those Christians weren't confused. They said that these pagans that thought we were gonna worship Polycarp were tripping. They didn't know that it is impossible for us to deny Christ. That it is impossible for us to attribute to someone else what he did for us. But we rightly love the people who are the disciples of God because we ourselves seek to be the disciples of God. And in the same way, we need to love one another. We need to recognize who is a member of the church and we need to care for, to reprove, to rebuke, to edify, to love and to lift up, to pray for and to believe in the people of God all over the world. And we're not just one body and we're not just one global body global church, but we are part of the body of Christ all over the earth today, billions strong because of what Polycarp did, because of what Ignatius did, because of what Irenaeus did, because of what Clement did, because of what John did, because of what Paul did, because of what Peter did, because of what Jesus did. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.